have been uh, coming to this church for the last 30 years. Okay, I have been. <laughs> so in case uh, some of you are new, last time I was here was two years ago. And uh, I like to show my face every two years so that you don't forget that we are one of your missionaries. That you have been supporting and partnering with us for many, many years. And uh, when we started in 91, it was just Vanita and I. Two of us went there back to India. And now we have uh, four organizations in India, a staff of 24. And you take the credit for that because how the work has multiplied by your gracious prayers and financial help. I have, uh, uh, we established the only seminary in Northwest India, which is an accredited school to serve 100 million people in the region. And uh, our capacity is only 60 students. And even for that, we had to fight and struggle because we serve an area where the population of Christians, evangelical Christians, is 0.01%, not even 0.1%. If you've ever been to India, know about India, it has a population of 1.3 billion people, lots of people. And the tradition has it that the gospel came to India about 2,000 years ago. But unfortunately, till today, the only 2.3% of uh, the population of India is called Christians, and that too, majority of them are Catholics. Somehow, uh, the church has not been able to grow and, grow and flourish in that part of the world. So that's why it's one of the toughest areas to work with. Oftentimes people equate it as a harvest field. But I say, no, 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 no. It's one of those hardest rocky fields that hasn't even been plowed yet. We constantly sow the seed, and why we don't see any fruit? Because somebody has not prepared the ground yet. It needs to be prepared. Take the stones out, water it, take the weeds out, and watch it slowly grow and mature. Only then it will uh, happen. Recently, somebody asked me, so how are things in India? Just tell me in one word. And I said, good. And they said, okay, tell me in two words how things are in India. I said, not good. <laughs> so you just need to know a little bit more, and then you realize all the toughness and all the situations that we deal with, with the government and with the religions and everything. But we thank you for your continued support and partnership uh, in what we're trying to do for the Lord, for the kingdom, and allowing him. My only complaint to God is, Lord, you're not moving fast enough. I said, let's get going. Because in a country like India, uh, millions and millions die every day without knowing the Lord, and that breaks my heart. That the task is not done. But don't worry, I'm not going to preach a sermon on missions to cause any guilt feeling, because some of you are already feeling uncomfortable that uh, here comes a missionary, another sermon on missions to make me feel guilty. I'm going to preach on something else which is going to make you even more guilty. <laughs> and uh, to focus upon that as to what the Lord wants us to listen this morning. I noticed that my sermon title and my text and outline did not make it to the bulletin, which is good, because now I can say whatever I want to say. I don't have to stick to the outline. But this morning, the title that I have chosen is uh, the parable of building capacity. And we'll come to that. But let me start with 
the simple concept in the book of Genesis. God creates everything, creates man and woman, and he tells them that, okay, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And oftentimes we take that concept, or he just wants us to have lots of children. But actually there are two different Hebrew words used over there. Multiply represents having children and multiplying yourself. But the concept of fruitful had to do with being productive, uh, making something out of your life and something out of who you are, and producing something that is going to be worth something. And that concept of fruitfulness is weaved through all through the scriptures. God loves the analogy of a tree and a fruit all through from Genesis to Revelation. He says to Adam and Eve and says to humanity, I want you to be fruitful. Psalmist starts Psalm 1 by saying that a righteous man is like a tree planted by the, by the stream of the river so that in due season it produces fruit. So fruit is not only about having children, but talks about who you are as a person, what are you going to do with your life. We come to Matthew chapter 12, again Jesus picks up on the same thing, and he says a tree is known by its fruit. You make the tree good, the fruit will be good. Then Jesus, John chapter 15, he says, you abide in me, let me abide in you so that you can bear much fruit. I can even prune you, I can even trim you, and I can make you more productive so that you can produce fruit. He's not talking about children. In fact, he says that it is to my Father's glory that you produce much fruit. Paul picks up on the same thing in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. He says the fruit of the Spirit, and he lists there but nine attributes. He's not talking about having nine children and name them as love, peace, joy, and happiness, and long-bearing. And what God picks up in Genesis chapter 1, in Revelation chapter 22, the last book of the Bible, he comes back to the same tree again. He says, remember the tree in the garden? The tree of life? He says, that tree is back. In fact, it's going to have 12 different kinds of fruit, one for each month, and it's back again. Being fruitful. Another way God described that fruitfulness was the concept of doing good works. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, 9, and 10, the purpose of our salvation is so that we can do the good works that God has prepared before the foundation of the earth. God could have designed such a way that the day we come to the Lord, we are raptured up in heaven. That could have been the salvation. Done. No more sin, no more suffering, no more sanctification. The moment you come to the Lord, you're in heaven. He says, no, 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 no. I want you to be on earth because there are some works I've prepared for you. I want you to be fruitful. The reason he gave us the written word, the scripture, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to 17, 18, it says the scripture is given to us so that we can be taught, we can be corrected, we can be rebuked, we can be trained for what? so that we are equipped and ready for every good work. Our salvation is for good works. The scriptures have a good work. God says, I have already decided what good works I want to get done from you. I just need to make you ready now so that you're good to do the works. And why? What Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's how you reflect God's glory back to him. So beginning from the end, God wants us to be good stewards of the resources that he's given to us and produce fruit that brings him much glory and contributes to his kingdom. That's just the introduction. Wasn't it good? I'm ready to listen to myself. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, a set of parables, the one I want to focus upon, goes like this. He says, I'm going to summarize, there was a man who wanted to go on a long journey, and he bring, calls his servants, and he distributes his wealth. And he gives to them, to one person he gives five talents, to other two, and to other one. And the text says that he gives to them according to their ability what they'll be able to handle. Now, for the longest time, when I was a young believer, I saw the talent meant that these are the natural spiritual gifts. You can sing and dance and play instrument music. But no, 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 it's a biblical measurement, and oftentimes, gold was measured with this. And a talent is a very large measurement. So when a text says that he gave to one five, another to two, one to one, don't feel sorry for the guy who just got one, because basically what he got was 75 kilograms of gold. About 150 pounds. Gold. What he got was million, million plus dollars in today's currency. So it's a large amount of money, large amount of property invested to them. And he says, here it is, and I'm going on a journey and I want you to invest it and multiply it for me. Even though the text doesn't say, but I presume, and I say, I think he told them, here's the money and double it for me. Now anyone who's an investment company or investment business, uh, you'll tell me how long it takes to double your investment. There was a time when people used to get 20% return on the uh, stock market, gone are those days, your bank now gives you 0.01% interest on your checking account, so you can multiply how long it's going to take before it gets doubled. But whatever way you calculate, it's going to take them between 7 to almost 20 years to double that wealth. It's a long time it's gone for. But then think about it. That's not the only thing they're going to do. He gives them this money. He said, when I come back, I want you to give it back to me double, which means maybe whatever extra you make is yours, or you're still going to get your salary. You're going to still be taken care of. It's just my investment. I want you to give it back to me. This is my money. It's my talent that I'm giving it to you, and I want you to use it for me, and I'll take an account for that. He's gone on a long journey comes back, and then the text says, in verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled account with them. The man who had received five talents brought the other five and said, Master, here, look, your five talents, and I've doubled it five more. Verse 21, he replied, he said, well then, good and faithful servant, you have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. 
Verse 22, the one who got two talents, say the same thing, I've doubled it, here it is. Verse 23, exactly the same commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been in charge of many more things. The third one, he has his own reasons why he did not do anything with the money. He said, I've buried it. I know you're an unjust person. You wanted me to invest this money for you so you can go on a journey on a long vacation. So when you come back, you'll have a double investment. So I've buried it. Here is what you gave it back, so you can't accuse me that I lost any of your money. He has a reason, but the master describes him. He says, you're a wicked, lazy person. Compared to the other one who are good and faithful, he says, you're wicked and lazy. Your excuses were not good enough. He said, I'm not only going to take away from you what you have, but even other things that you think that you have, which you think that you have earned, which you think that you have worked hard, and they are your money, they are your possessions, I'm taking those also away. And he gives it to the other person. In between, the Lord Jesus throws in a number of things here. He says that this parable is in the context of one day our Lord returning and taking an account for our life and our stewardship. I want to expand the definition of the word talent to the spiritual gifts that he has given it to us because we are asked to be good stewards of the resources that he has provided. Money, of course, is one of them. God gives to each one of us based upon our ability. Someone has one spiritual gift, someone has two, someone three, someone five, but according to the scripture it says that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has sovereignly chosen and blessed each one of us with at least one gift to serve the body of Christ and to serve the kingdom, at least one. And many of us have more than one. Master has been away on a long journey. He says, the only reason I still kept you on this earth is to make investment of the talents that I've given to you. Now, some of us would like to claim our spiritual disability. Lord, just put me on a minimum benefit. I don't want to work for you. I will take my chances. But declare me as a spiritual disabled person because I can't share the gospel. I can't serve in the church. I don't want to do anything. I have my own reasons. My childhood, my father, my neighbor, my government, my political party. All kinds of reasons. But God classifies that as wicked and lazy person. I'll come back to that one. He gives it us according to our ability. So I can't complain that why Pastor Philip has a larger church than I have a smaller church. I can't complain that somebody else is so gifted that they can play piano so beautifully. In fact, they can play multiple instruments and I can't play any instrument. That's God's decision. You and I have nothing to complain. We just have to look at what has been entrusted to us. He gives to us the ability, and notice the bottom line evaluation is, well done, good and faithful servant. Both of them, those who had two multiplied to four, those who have five became ten. The bottom line commendation was the same. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now we are a generation where everybody likes to be praised. 
In fact, we would like to be praised with large, big, fancy words. To call somebody just good is not good enough. You know, we want to be heard that we are awesome, tremendous, unbelievable, super. All kinds of superlatives to describe how well we are doing. Again, going back to Genesis, when God, the master creator, creates the universe which is breathtaking, we look at it and we say, wow. And God says, eh, good. That's all he calls it. Good. He creates other things and he says, good. He creates Adam and Eve, he says, good. So the only comment that he ever makes, anything that he ever says to anyone, is good. Why? In Luke chapter 18, when people are impressed with Jesus, and they're saying that Jesus, you speak so well, you teach so, so well, you're a very good teacher. In Luke 18 verse 19, Jesus says, why are you calling me good? No one is good except God. He says, if you're calling me good, you might well call me God. It is sufficient to say good because what that translated means that God is saying that you are goodly, you're godly. You're as close as you can come to God's expectation of what good is. It's the highest word that God could ever use for you and I. He says to him, good. The second word he chooses and he says, faithful. The good part has to do with the individual's character. That's the godliness which is reflected. When we call somebody godly, we talk, tell them they're as close to as what God expects them. Faithfulness has to do with consistency. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9, I think he says that God's is, God is faithful and his faithfulness is to thousand generations. When he makes a covenant, when he makes a statement, to thousand generations benefit from that. So if the master came back after a long time and he got the account from these people, he's saying to them, you're a man of good character and consistently good for a long period of time. That's enough. Because in today's world, that takes heaven to make that happen. Everything around us is trying to make us fumble and fall in our character. Fumble and fall in our godliness. But God says, good, godly. And till the end, being faithful for a long, long time. In contrast to that, he calls the other man, the third person, he calls him wicked, a crafty, a wickedly smart person. The one who, whose thinking is crooked, who in every way he thinks of getting by with the system, that he thought he could even argue his way with God and convince him that the man who gave him the money is wrong, but not him. I see that reflected in today's millennium generation. One of the signs of a millennium generation is this. They so well know what they don't want. You ask them for anything, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't want this. You turn around and say, what is it that you do want? Can you please also list those things? 
My wife just shared a little cartoon that says that the millennium generation is also known when the communion is served, they want to know, is the bread gluten-free and is the juice sugarless? <laughs> Wicked. And then lazy. Pure lazy. I was talking to Pastor Philip there just yesterday, and I was saying that there's so much of emphasis upon going to school, going to college, going to earn your degrees, and to become smart so you can get a good job, you can manage and all that. And you know what the Bible says? Just sit around and watch the ants. How they work so hard in coordination with one another they know how to save for the future. They know how much to eat and how to put aside. He said, just look at the ants. You don't have to get a PhD degree. <laughs> They'll teach you. In fact, the PhD doesn't, degree doesn't serve us because we forgot the basic things. How to hold hands and work together with one another. And it is fascinating to watch the ants. Oftentimes, when there's nothing better coming on the channel, once in a while, turn to this animal channel, and you find these different things. And one time, it was a story about the ants. And what fascinated me was that they are going through, and there's a little gap in the land, and they had to cross that. And you know how they do it? One ant comes over there, and with his back feet, or her back feet, she stretches as much as possible. Another one comes on top of that and balances and spreads a little bit more further. Like this, four ants come and they make a bridge. Therefore, stay there. Others are crossing over, and guess what? They knew exactly how long they'll be able to stay there, so they change the position. Then these four go in forward, another four come and make the bridge. I said, what school did they go to? <laughs> Where did they get the MBA? Are they Harvard graduate or are they from Yale? Bible says it's as simple as that. God has given us his resources. God has given us talents. God has given, entrusted to us, his kingdom to us. In this city, in this country, and to the ends of the earth. If God wanted, he could have accomplished his task with his angels. But he picked you and I. He says, I want you to be part of my plan for my people for this planet. And you know what we're doing? We are burying the resources. We are burying the talent. So one day when God does take an account, we are going to give him a good excuse and say, you can have it back. I didn't get a fair share in life. Another principle of this one is, when I look at this parable, and if the master was gone for a long time, and they worked so hard to double the money, I probably would have seen the text written like this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Since you are faithful in little things, I want you to put you on a nice vacation and retirement plan. My treasury will take care of you. Enjoy life. No. More gets dumped on them. He says, no, since you are good at something, I'm going to give you more responsibilities. 
Have you ever heard in an office setting that your boss comes to you and says to you that you are the laziest person, you come late, you leave home, for, home early, you're always murmuring and complaining, and we always think that you're not worth what we pay you, so we are going to promote you and make you a supervisor. <laughs> Have you ever heard anything like that? No. Only if you're good and faithful, then someone wants to double the responsibilities that you have, maybe triple the responsibilities that you have. Only one who is good and faithful in what has been entrusted to them get more entrusted to them. But here's the secret. The text says in all the two, both the verses, that the master says, well done, I'm going to make you charge, in charge a bigger thing, but come and share the master's joy. One translation is master's happiness. He says, that's the difference. Additional work, additional responsibility that is from the Lord is never going to become a burden because it comes with the master's joy. It comes with his ability. It comes with his grace. The day you and I have to drag our feet to what we've been doing in life, it doesn't have the joy of the Lord. I mean, they have the wrong job or I'm the wrong person for the job. Pastor just said that if you have a smile, if you're happy, just put, let your face know. I often say this also. If you can't do your job with a smile on your face, either you have the wrong job or you are the, you're the wrong person for the job. Because the joy of the master, the joy of the Lord is the one which is our strength, which gives us the ability, which gives us that consistent faithfulness that God says, good. Good and faithful. Because it comes to the master's job. Out of many favorite uh, verses, one of my favorite verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Paul over there is saying that whatever I am, I am by God's grace. Okay, not because of me, but because of God's grace. But then he says, and yet, I worked harder than anybody else. But not I, but the grace of God. But there's in between, he throws a phrase, and he says, and I did not waste God's grace. I did not let God's grace be wasted on me. In fact, I took it and I multiplied. It made me work even harder than before. So God's grace is not to make us lazy and to sit around Oh, I don't have to do anything now. No, 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 no. That inspires me that now I can work harder than before. A farmer who gets a piece of land, he does not sit around the farm day and night praying, Lord, please give me crops, please give me food. I am suffering, I am hungry. He has to work very hard. But the grace of God makes us work harder than before. I was laughing at uh, this uh, parable, uh, this story from Acts chapter 3, where Peter is the one who is used to heal the person, the first miracle post-Pentecost, and the first miracle by the church, the first miracle by the disciples is recorded there. A lame man from birth who comes to this gate to beg. And the text says that every day from his birth, people carry him and they bring him to the gate 
They put him at a good position, which would be the best for begging. Must have been hundreds of other people. And he begs the whole day. They bring him food. At the end of the day, they take him, take him home, bathe him, put him to bed. Everything fine. One day, he sees Peter, another disciple, passing by, and he wants to beg because they look like that they may have some money. And Peter turns around, the same Peter who had just denied the Lord with such confidence in the Lord, he says to him, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have in the name of, I'm going to give it to you in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he grabs his hand and he heals him. But what I would like to see after that text was that everybody else sitting around there, hundreds of people should have jumped up and said, Peter, me too, Peter, me too. But the way I see it, other people must have said, oh, what a bad deal this guy got. He had his life made that somebody used to carry him around. He had to sit around. He used to get all the money and all the benefits. At the end, they'll take him home. Now he's healed. He has to work. Yeah. <laughs> he'll have to go to work. That's how we see it sometimes. We like God to be a socialist. Lord, just give me the benefits and put me on some kind of a stature for the perpetual happiness. But God says, while you're on this earth, I expect some hard work. Lots of hard work. In fact, so much of hard work that I'm going to give you my grace to make you even work harder than what you're able to work. Because the time is going to come for that relaxation when we go to heaven. But until that time, I've given you responsibilities. I've given you, made you stewards of the resources that I provided. The church expects you to work. God expects you to work. Your employers work, expect you to work. And the attitude is not, let me see how I can cut corners to do the minimum. Recently, a survey was done all around the world. And what they did, they went around and asked employees and the same employers about the attitude for work. The employees said that we are not paid for what we are worth. I deserve more. And the same employer said that we are paying too much to these employees. We don't get enough work from them. So there's something wrong right there. Each one of us think that we are worth more than that. Again, the same survey says the average hour, productive hour, a person contributes to the organization out of eight hours of work is less than four hours. We just stretch the four hours to eight hours. We make it sound busy. We make it sound hard. In fact, some of us work so hard that we have not used a little bit of smartness to see how it can be more productive than just completely hard work. A day is coming when the Lord is going to ask us for account, for a stewardship, for the talent and the resources that he's given to you, the spiritual gifts that he's given to you. How have you used in this church? How have you used it in this city? How have you used it in the ends of the earth? That's what we are doing. We are becoming an extension of what you have to do as a church to reach the ends of the earth. Your partnership with us, your gracious help to us, your prayers for us is what the total stewardship is. 
A day is coming when we have to give an account. And the bottom line statement that I want to make of this parable is, to me this parable was to help expand the capacity of these servants. That's why I call it a parable of building capacity. What does that mean? They were able to do so much so faithfully, their master says, now I'm going to be able to make you do more, much more faithfully. He enlarged their capacity. You were able to handle one, two talents, ten talents, now let's see, next time when I go, I'm going to give you twenty. I'm going to give you hundred. Constantly expanding your capacity. It's the same thing what, what Paul said. The reason God gave his grace so that he can multiply my hard work and work harder, and yet it'll be all by God's grace. James had the same issue with the, with, the, with, with the believers. He said, you can sing all the songs about how much you love God and all the songs about how much what he means to you. At the end of the day, show me some works. You show me your work, I'll figure it out, how much of faith you have. In fact, God says the same thing. Nowhere in the scripture we are commanded to ever say to God, God, I love you. We are commanded to love him, but not say. And we stand up for 45 minutes just to sing, how much I love you, Lord. You know what the Bible says? God says, if you love me, obey my commandments. You do what I ask you to do, I'll figure it out that you love me. Just do what I've asked you to do. I'll figure it out that you love me. Lord, help us expand our capacity to serve you, to be part of this kingdom that you have placed us and not removed us from this earth, so that at the end of the day, end of the week, end of the year, we can hear those beautiful words, good and faithful servant, so that we can get more responsibility. So maybe you'll entrust us with more so we can do more for you, more for your kingdom, more for your glory. And at the end, it's going to be good for us. It's going to be good for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Lord, for each one here who knows the Lord Jesus Christ as a personal Lord and Savior. And what a joy it is to be showered with your grace, your love, your peace, your strength, and your joy. And the responsibilities of life that you've given to us we ask, Father, that you help us to carry them faithfully with a smile on our face, knowing that one day we have to give an account to you for all that you have entrusted to us. That one day we may hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, that I'm going to entrust bigger responsibility to you. And Lord, we also pray that any work that you put, to, put in our lab, it comes with your joy. But on the other hand, I want to pray, Father, if there's anyone over here who does not know you and a day's work and this life is a burden, probably it is because has, it does not come to the joy of the Lord. I ask, Father, if there's someone over here saying that I've not been able to expand my capacity, it is because they do not know the Lord personally. The grace of God, the divine helper, the Holy Spirit has not indwelled them to enlarge their capacity. We ask, Father, that such a one will not go home this morning until they reconcile the fact with you that, Lord, I too want to enlarge my capacity to serve you, to be a productive person, 
and contribute the kingdom of God. Lord, you saved us so that we can glorify you with our works. That you be honored and you'll be praised. We thank you, Father, for giving us your grace to multiply our labor so that we can work harder. But still, at the end of the day, it is all because of you. Thank you, Father. May we ever be able to hear from you that we were good in your eyes. We were faithful. Because that's what you are. You're so good to us. You've been so faithful. You have blessed us so much. Now make us blessing to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.